Our passage this morning is taken from Romans chapter 3. We're at the last part of Romans chapter 3. We're going to look at the last 10 verses in the chapter this morning, verses 21 through 31. And young Christians, young theologians, I want you to listen very carefully and see if you can find the answer to this question. Who reaches for whom? Who is it that reaches out? Do we reach for the Lord or does He reach for us? Listen very carefully and see if you can find the answer to that question and see if you can find a verse in this group of verses that gives us the answer to that question. There's a great verse in here for you to memorize at home and your parents will help you if you can't find it. This is the gospel of Jesus given through Paul, his servant, in the letter to the Romans. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood, to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, because in His divine forbearance, He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time, so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus." then what becomes of boasting? It's excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Or is God the God of the Jews only? Is He not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also. Since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith, and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. Lord Jesus, we have heard of all that was required to bring a sacrifice of peace. All the regulations, all the requirements as to how the animal was to be killed and butchered and then offered up. And reading through the passage together, the hard passages of Leviticus, we realize we could never bring a peace offering that would even approach the satisfaction of our God. We have no peace offering that we could offer that would be approved in the sight of God. We cannot win peace with God for ourselves. And so you've won peace for us with you. You have offered of Jesus the perfect peace offering. And now let that peace settle into our minds and our hearts and hold out to us Jesus the peace offering again. From these verses, allow our fear and our guilt and our continued attraction to sin Allow them all to dissipate and fade and give to us more confidence in our God and more delight in our Savior. If you'll do all of this, we will give you thanks. We ask it in the Father and the Son and the Spirit. 
Amen. Would you be seated? Nature cannot be hidden. The, the stuff that's inside of us, the essential quality that makes us up, the drive and the force and the principle at work in us that makes us who and what we are, it can't be hidden away. Nature always comes out. Did I ever tell you about the time a couple of years ago when I bought a recording of pirate songs? It was a recording, an anthology of authentic pirate songs, many of them dating back to the 18th century, the early part of the 18th century. Now, the story is that I went to the music store to buy a Christmas album, and I couldn't find what I was looking for, so I asked the clerk for help, and she went to the back room to see if what I was looking for was in stock. And she was gone an awfully long time, So in the meanwhile, I found this album of pirate songs, and I listened to it. And in the first three songs that I previewed, I was pretty impressed. It was interesting. It was was different. Current artists doing modernizations of work songs and sea shanties. So the clerk came back out to the front of the store, and she said, We don't have the album you're looking for. And I said, That's okay, I'll just take these pirate songs. And she rang them up, and she put them in the bag, and I took them back to the office, and I put them in my machine, and I played them while I was working around the office, filing papers, throwing things away, tidying up. It all went pretty well, and then the lyrics took a turn for the shocking. There was a song where there were cuss words strung together in ways I didn't know you could put cuss words together. So I ran over and I turned the volume down just in case one of you happened to come into the office. Because I didn't want to have to explain that one. And I thought, well, maybe it's just that one song. And the next song was worse. And the song after that was X-rated. Reminded me of the limericks my Uncle Art used to sing at family reunions. The kinds of limericks you're not supposed to sing at family reunions. So I shut it off, and I went over and picked up the cover, the case of the album, and I looked at it. There were no warnings printed on it anywhere. No parental advisory labels, nothing. What had I missed? Just the obvious. What did I think pirates would sing for months and months at sea? Why did I think that pirates would suddenly not act like pirates? Why did I think that pirates would deny their own nature and pretend to be something they're not, like gentlemen? Our nature, whatever is in us, whatever the essential quality is that makes us up, it always comes out. Paul's argument in this part of chapter 3 is that God isn't about to hide his nature. He won't hide it for you because it makes you uncomfortable. It's a little bit too much. And he's not about to hide it for the culture or the world. He won't be quiet about his nature. Why on earth or in heaven would the perfect one hide his perfection or be quiet about it? In fact, Paul goes to great lengths to tell us 
in verses 21 and 22, that God means for His nature to be manifested. The law and the prophets have testified to it, but now He's making it visible and obvious. And in verses 25 and 26, Paul says the same thing in a different way. He intends to show His nature. It shouldn't surprise us Because we show our nature too. We're not quiet about our nature. And we're not good at hiding ours, according to verse 23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It's a universal problem. Our nature just isn't like God's nature. And that's the reason you can go to a music store to buy incarnation songs and say, Ah, these pirate songs are just as good. Our nature is nothing like His. So what are we going to do about the universal problem? Well, we try to use the law. We use the law to make ourselves look a little better. We use the law to try to say, look, my nature is not as bad as you say. It's not as bad as all that. I'm pretty good, and pretty good is good enough. Or... We really abuse the law, thinking we can use it to pull ourselves out of our nature. We will work our way out with the law. I'm going to law my way out of my fallenness and my sinfulness. But that's some some steep law-keeping. So again, Paul corrects our view of the law in verses 27 through 30. The law was designed to show us God's perfect nature against our fallen nature. So, first, the law shows us the needed conversion of our hearts. It's supposed to make our hearts ache as it shows us our nature. And our aching hearts are supposed to reach up to the God who is reaching down to us. That's verse 27. You can't use the law for boasting, Paul says in verse 27. But then against the design of the law, our arrogant hearts try to turn the law into a ladder by which we can climb up to join God in His nature. Again, from verse 27. What kind of law is this? Is this a law of works? Our hearts try to use it that way. And then our deceived hearts discover that when we try to make the law a ladder, it turns into a slide. And we go sliding further into our nature and further away from God. That's the tail end of verse 27. Now, this is not a law of works. This is the law of faith. And we're right back where we started. And our aching hearts or again, to reach out to the God who is reaching down to us. Now that Paul has reoriented us to the law, now that he's corrected our continually broken thinking and feeling about the law, here's what Paul's getting on about. Every morning, I get up and I force Jennifer to endure the same routine. I get dressed for the day and then I go chase her down in whatever part of the house she is, and I ask her to critique what I'm wearing. These shirt go, does this shirt go with these pants? What shoes do I wear with this? Are you sure this fits right? Every day I subject her to the same routine, and she's been very patient with it all, 
until recently she became annoyed and she said, you know, you worry about what you wear more than a woman. (laughs) In all the time I'd been doing this, she'd never asked me about it and I'd never explained it, but now I had the opportunity. So I said, well, you need to know that I do this for you. She said, you do this for me. How is this for me? And I said, because wherever we are and whatever we're doing, when you look across the room and see me, I want you to say, wow. And she said, well, this is a Tuesday and you're not getting a wow on a Tuesday. (laughs) And I said, no, 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 you don't understand. Even on Tuesdays, I want you to look across the room And when you see me, I want you to say, wow. Now, do you get it? The theological wow factor that Paul is giving to us here is the righteousness of God. Four times he speaks of God's righteousness. Actually, it's more. The derivatives of the word used for righteousness number even beyond that measly four. But in English, we can at least point to these four instances of it. Righteousness is what he manifests. That's verses 21 and 22. Righteousness is what he shows. That's verses 25 and 26. Look, we should should talk about what righteousness is before we go any further. It's a very technical definition. And it means to have this strict adherence to the law, which doesn't quite fit God. We need to adjust it a little bit. God's not subject to His law the way we're subject to His law. He has a different relation to it. So let's adjust the definition this way. For God, righteousness is His attentive love for His own inherent lawfulness. Or we could say it a little bit differently. It's the full beauty of lawfulness that flows out of His being and out of His character. Righteousness is the nature that God wears when we glimpse Him and we see Him from across the room, from across the distance. It's His righteousness that's supposed to make our hearts catch. But remember the size of the problem. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We don't even begin to near God in His glory can't even begin to approach Him. In our sin, in our love of our sin, we can't appreciate His righteousness. We don't have eyes for the righteousness of God. We can't even recognize what true righteousness is. We are foreigners and we're oblivious to it. You can really begin to sense the danger and the magnitude of our sin when it's put before us this way. The beautiful one in all of his beauty is not beautiful to us. And what is not beautiful has our hearts. I don't think we know how to think about what's written for us in verse 23. That in sin we've all fallen short of his glory. But it's the backbone of the passage, and without it, none of the rest of this makes sense. Falling short of God's glory means 
what God is and what God loves is out of reach to us. And the passage whispers that we're not even reaching for it on our own, so He must reach for us. He must reach down to us. We need a solution that's bigger than the problem, and we have one. And Paul starts listing it in verse 24. We are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption of Jesus Christ, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance, He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be just and justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. The good news of the passage is the righteousness of God wants more of itself. The righteousness of God won't settle for less than more of its own kind. The righteousness of God insists on finding its way to us reaching out to us and working its way into us. The beauty, the righteousness of God that we won't and can't reach for, reaches for us. It reaches for us in the gift of justification, Paul is saying. And we sang of justification. Let me push away from the technical definitions and I'll give you an experiential definition of justification. It was our second hymn. Christ the glorious groom, Mary's far beneath himself, and you get to marry up. It reaches for us in the incarnation. God's birth in righteous flesh, in the person of the Son, It was all done to chase after us and bring us into His righteousness. The righteousness of God chases after us and reaches for us in the propitiatory bloodletting of Jesus on the cross. A propitiation is a death to satisfy and silence wrath. A propitiation is a payment for blood Vengeance. The bleeding out of Jesus on the cross, in other words, is also the bleeding out of God's immeasurable anger for our sin. And it's the bleeding out of our willful resistance and rejection of His vigorous righteousness. The righteousness of God reaches out for us in the resurrection of Jesus, which is the Passover, according to verse 25. By faith in the risen Jesus, we walk out of the tomb with blood smeared over the top of the door and down the sides of it. By faith in Jesus, we've gone all the way under the power of death for a time but we've not been lost to the power of death because of the righteousness of Christ. So now, because of the gospel of Jesus who lived and died and rose for us, the tomb is in a house of shadows and fear and terror. It's been reduced to a piece of playground equipment. It's a playhouse for us. 
I love the way Paul gives the gospel in this passage with punch. Jesus shows His righteousness. And He shows that He is both the just and the justifier. Jesus has come to be both the judge who condemns our sin and the advocate who forgives our sin by winning and applying to us true righteousness. By His own works received through faith. But He plays both roles. He is the judge and He is the justifier. It was an interesting week in the news. Very interesting. Roman Polanski... The celebrated director was finally arrested 32 years after his crime. 32 years after he committed the crime. And finally he was arrested. He went over to Switzerland to receive a Lifetime Achievement Award. And there the Swiss grabbed him up on extradition orders from the U.S. But for 32 years, ever since in 1978... He drugged and assaulted a 13-year-old girl. He's been living in freedom in France. Living in luxury out of the reach of justice. After his arrest this week, the press lit up. The media had a heyday. Many journalists, many commentators were crying foul, saying, Polanski suffered enough. He's lived in exile all these years. His name has been inseparably attached to this crime. He's an old man. Leave him alone, some said. He's an artistic genius, the French said. He should be left alone. One commentator said, his victim has forgiven him. She's 45. She's forgiven him. Leave him alone. One commentator, there was only one that I read, But still there was one who said, we punish crimes even 32 years later because we believe in justice. We believe there is a right and a wrong. And what Polanski did was wrong, and it should be called wrong. That's why we do this. Also this week, strange that it happened this week, but it happened this week. Susan Atkins died. Susan Atkins was a member of Charles Manson's cult. She was actually the cult member who murdered Roman Polanski's wife and his unborn child back during the cult's killing spree in August of 1969. She was serving a term of life in prison. She died of a brain tumor. And when she was arrested, she was defiant and remorseless as she was being sentenced in the courtroom. At her sentencing, she turned around and warned everybody present, you'd better lock your doors and watch your kids. But in prison, Atkins was converted. Jesus showed her the horror of her sin and her unrighteousness, and he reached for her with his righteousness, and her heart was turned as she was found by Jesus the Savior. And she publicly renounced her crimes, and she publicly renounced Manson himself, and her last recorded words were, 
My God is an amazing God. There is something deep within us that wants God to be both. Needs God to be both. We want God to be the judge who lets no crime pass unjudged. And we want and need Him to be the justifier who propitiates for and forgives and recreates the guilty. In order to be complete people, we need both full justice and full grace. You can't have one or the other. You need both full justice and full grace for assurance and peace and joy. We need to know that at the same time we can be severely condemned and jealously claimed. Martin Luther has a beautifully paradoxical saying that captures the complexity and the simplicity of this gospel at the same time. Martin Luther said, God loved us even while He hated us. And that's justification. At the same time, Love and hate appear, but love overcomes the hatred. And the gospel in justification is more than a gospel of second chance. If you hear it presented that way, you're not coming anywhere near to what's been given to us in the gospel. It is not a gospel of second chances. It's the certain death of the old person. And the sacrifice and propitiation of Jesus. And it's the as certain birth and raising of a new person. By faith in the rising, the vindicating work of Jesus. And do you hear the power of the gospel in the letter as Paul is writing this section? This righteousness of God that won't be hidden wants to be placed on display. This righteousness of God insists that more of itself be had. It insists on spreading out, and it wants to spread itself and display itself in you. No longer content to be kept just externally, just as we read and talked regarding the law a few weeks ago. This righteousness of God is not just external. It's not just a legal declaration that in Jesus We are accounted as righteous. Now it wants to move internally. Now it wants to become part of who we are. Now it wants to be our new nature. And Paul is driving us to see that this is the case. And you should love nothing more than the righteousness that has reached for you. But to truly love righteousness, you have to love it in its parts. You can't love it as a concept. To love it practically and personally, you have to love it in the two parts that are presented to us here. So we have to come to love the righteousness of God that judges us. The righteousness of God that calls our sin what it is and condemns us even. I I know that we really don't like to talk about our sin, but Think just for a minute. We really don't want our sin to commit all kinds of unspeakable crimes and then run away to France out of reach of justice. We want our sin to be caught and condemned. We should really pray for a deeper sense of verse 23. Let us see our sin 
Let us see, O Lord, how far short we fall of Your glory. Open our eyes to see ourselves and break our hearts with what You let us see when You show us ourselves. I know in our church, lots of folks say, we talk way too much about our sin. It's too heavy. It's too morbid. It's too depressing. Do you realize that never in the history of the church was there ever a revival A strong movement of the Spirit of Christ sweeping through and awakening sleeping sleeping saints, sleepy Christians. Never was there a movement of the Spirit sweeping out of the church and reaching out into our neighborhoods and saving the lost. That never happened in the history of the church without the church first being deeply, deeply, deeply convicted of sin. We don't talk about our sin too much, my brothers and sisters. We're not talking about it enough. And if, if you don't want to talk about it, that's okay. I just want you to know you're voting against revival. You're saying, don't do this with us, but you can check the documentation for yourselves. It's all right there. The church was always revived when the people said, break our hearts with our sin. Give us deeper conviction of sin. Oh, Savior, do us this strange kindness. Strike our hearts to know the offense of our sins. Let us see it in our willful sins and the sins that we're blind to. Wake us from our sin coma. If you want closeness with Jesus, then you need a deeper sense of your sin. It will take you closer to Him. It will move you to revival. And we need to love His righteousness and His justification. We need to love the righteousness of God that does the work of justifying us. So we should pray for a deeper sense of verse 25. Let us have more of an understanding of, more of the propitiation of Jesus. Let us let us have a deeper contemplation of what Jesus did in propitiating for us. Let me see how his spilled blood alone shields me from earned wrath. Let me see how willingly and gladly he took to himself my full curse, my whole condemnation. Let me feel the pains of my sin melting in the propitiatory pains of Jesus on the cross. Give me more amazement at the intervention of Jesus and amaze me by the fact that God was not forced into this. He put Jesus forward for this. He was pleased to make the sacrifice that makes me righteous. Loving His righteousness in its parts like this means that now we can truly love the righteousness being held out to us. We can experience what it is to be thrilled over it, to be excited by it, to be alive in it. You don't have to fear it anymore or fight against it or guard yourself against it or outmaneuver it. You don't have to Ring a righteousness of your own out of the law. You don't have to figure out ways to cheat the law. Instead, He's given to you an extravagant gift. 
giving to you his own quality is the kind of gift that makes us nervous, the kind of gift that makes us say, oh, no, that's too much. But we'd be fools to try to give it back. He is loving you by igniting in you a love for his righteousness. And that's why Paul says the law is upheld in verse 31. What do we say? That this faith overthrows the law, that we can put it out on the curb and wait for it to be picked up with the bulk trash? No. The law is upheld because now he is teaching you to love all the internal beauty of the law. So now we can ignore the seductions of our sin and we can kindle a passionate love affair with Christ's righteousness. And now we can abandon our sin and indulge in the gift of Christ's righteousness. There is no limit on this. You can binge on it. You can gorge yourselves on His righteousness. Now we can shake off our sin and embrace Christ's righteousness. He has declared you righteous in Jesus the Son so that you can share in the righteousness of Jesus the Son. Skeptics, I I want you just to listen one last time to verse 23. This is talking about all of us. I just want you to know that you're not excluded from this. For all have sinned. That means you too. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There, There is no sin so small that it doesn't deserve God's severest curse. So the question for you is, Who will pay that for you? Believe and ask Jesus to judge your sin with His own death. Judge it wrong. Judge it condemned with His own death. Believe and trust Jesus. And by faith in Him, be covered with His blood. And the wrath that you deserve for sin will never touch you. I know that's a crazy statement, but it's true. And I want you to see it's His promise. It's not mine. It's not mine to give, and He has given it. He's written it here for you. When I was a kid, the favorite game on our block was hide-and-seek, and we would play it for hours just before our moms would call us in for supper. And at the end of the game, there was always a call that reached out across the backyards of our neighborhood. Someone would yell, Ali, Ali, oxen free. Come out, come out wherever you are. I love to hear the call go out because I could watch from where I was and slowly kids would emerge from their hiding places. One would jump down out of a tree and another would climb out from under a shed or from under an overturned rowboat. Another one would crawl out of a doghouse or come out from behind a woodpile. The gospel of the righteousness of God in Christ, doesn't hide. Righteousness will not hide. It refuses to hide. And Paul is holding up to us this righteousness, and he's calling out to us, come out, come out wherever you are. Come out of your hiding. Stop hiding in your sin. Stop trying to hide away with your sin. Stop trying to cover up your sin and hide it from the view of others. You're being called out of hiding. 
And in the righteousness of Jesus, you get to stand in the open and call others out of hiding too. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Now, Lord Jesus, we ask you for these two things. Give us a deeper sense of our sin. We're slow to pray for this. We can be so, so shallow in our faith. I'm alarmed by my own shallowness day after day and week after week. But give us a deeper sense of our own sin. We want this so that we can be revived. So that we can see the movement of Christ's Spirit in His church, out of His church, awakening those who have slept for too long in His grace, awakening those who are dead in sin. Give us a deeper sense of our sin. Break our hearts for it. And then heal our hearts by giving to us a deeper sense of the justification of Jesus, everything that was required for our peace sacrifice, Jesus has performed. But don't let us take His propitiation for granted. Don't allow us to merely assume that we understand the fullness of what Jesus has done for us. Instead, give to us a vivid view of all that Jesus has accomplished by making Himself our wrath-silencing sin sacrifice. Heal our hearts and fill our hearts with joy to know righteousness has reached out for us this thoroughly and completely, being just and justifier at the same time. And make righteousness now our deepest love and our deepest desire. It's not something we earn on our own. It's something Jesus has brought us into and is working into our hearts as our new nature after the likeness of His own. Make us the kinds of people who hunger and thirst for righteousness, as Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount. And we confess we have not been those people. We've hungered and thirsted after a lot of things. Righteousness would be at the end of that list. And now we ask you to invert it. And we ask you to reset the priorities for us and make our hearts hungry and thirsty to enjoy the love of our God and to return love to Him by sharing in and participating in the righteousness that is the gift of grace from Jesus our Savior. And if you'll do this, all the effects of it, all the ends of it, All the marks of it will be obvious. We won't have to argue for it. We won't have to make long cases trying to describe the ways righteousness is alive and at work in us. It will be obvious and visible. Man, we long to be a church like that. I long to be a man like that. And so now, Jesus, reach for us and do these works of your intention in us, and we will give you thanks. We ask these things because you 
are the gracious one who has shown himself to us and called us into his grace. And we know that these appeals will not go unheard. Do this, O Savior.